With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. We take a little bit different uh, approach on this episode as I interview Dave Leefort. Dave is the Editor-in-Chief at Compliance Week, but our topic is the recently passed away Tommy Heinsohn, longtime Boston Celtic player, coach, and announcer. We take a look at some compliance and leadership issues through the lens of Tommy Heinsohn's life and what he meant to not only Boston, Massachusetts, and New England, but both to Dave and myself. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I have a very special treat for you today. Number one, because I have Dave Leefort. Dave is the Editor-in-Chief at Compliance Week. First of all, Dave, welcome, and thank you for taking the time to visit with me. Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure to talk to you today. And our podcast topic today is not precisely on compliance, although we may touch on it, but for probably a quarter of the nation, you will love this podcast. A quarter of the nation will hate this podcast. Probably half will be uh, neutral, but we're going to uh, get some uh, conversation going. And that is, I wanted to do a tribute to the recently deceased Tommy Heinsohn. And Dave, long time a Boston Celtics fan. And I've seen plenty of, uh, you know, plenty of highlight reels. And of course, you know, he would... He would almost on almost every broadcast bring up, you know, you know, back when I played or, you know, me and Russell would have done it this way or me and Coos would have done it that way. And so, you know, so I got I sort of got to know I got to know Tommy uh, as a broadcaster more than anything else. He is one of the a rare, rare individuals who spent literally his entire life with one franchise, uh, professional life. But even rarer, he spent uh, uh, not his playing life, but his professional life thereafter. He became a Celtics coach. He became a Celtics broadcaster. Um, I knew Tommy in each one of those phases of his career a little bit uh, as a player, very little bit more as a coach, and then a, as a broadcaster as well. But I just wanted to really explore his his place in the Boston sports pantheon and and how Boston feels about Tommy Heinsohn. And we can wrap that around the Celtics. We can wrap that around Boston sports and you guys' well known loyalty. Some might even say fanaticism, but uh, maybe uh, I was wondering if you could start by telling us uh, a little bit about the basketball history of Tommy Heinsohn. Yeah, so so Tommy, uh, I mean, he was he was born in Jersey, but really that's that's the uh, born and raised in Jersey, but then um, spent re- really all of his career in the Massachusetts area, most of it in Boston. He went to Holy Cross in the early fifties, uh, sort of just before uh, Bob Cousy also went to Holy Cross. Um, was drafted in by the Celtics in the mid fifties. Only spent, you know, only played the game for nine years. Believe it or not, a guy who's been part, uh, the only person that's been part of all seventeen Celtics championships. He only actually played the game uh, in the NBA with the Celtics for nine years. Of course, they won championships eight of those years. 
Uh, but he retired after nine. Some say it's because he had bad knees. Others blame, you know, a really uh, two pack a day smoking habit, <laughs> which back then was was more um, more the norm than than uh, I guess in today's world. But um, so yeah, only spent nine years playing the game. After that, actually, very briefly became an insurance salesman um, until he was sort of talked out of insurance and talked back into the NBA by, you know, one of his mentors, uh, Red Auerbach, um, who also famously coached the Celtics himself and was the architect of most of their championships. Um, he coached the Celtics for about 10 years, led him to two more championships. Uh, and then after that, uh, he became a broadcaster. And this was like in the, in the early eighties, became a broadcaster would broadcast off and on, and then really became a regular on Celtics broadcast in the nineties until, you know, recently even, I mean, I mean, the last couple of years, you know, he, he had been sick and had done much less on the broadcast, but you know, me growing up, I'm in my mid forties. I remember Tommy as a, as a mainstay on the, uh, on Celtics broadcast. And he was the one that made the Celtics relatable. He was, he was passionate, more passionate than any fan. And, you know, he was, uh, I guess, sort of proudly biased in the sense that when he saw something that didn't go the Celtics way, he would yell and scream just like he was coaching on the sidelines. He would mostly the direct, his ire was, was mostly directed toward the refs. Every call, according to Tommy, was a bad call. Um, and, you know, he, he let him know it as a, as a coach, as a player, and then, you know, as, obviously as a broadcaster. But that's what, it's what made him relatable um, to, the, to, to, the, to Boston fans. And it sort of endeared him to Boston fans that everyone knew uh, that he was incredibly biased toward, toward the Celtics. But that's why we loved him. He bled green just like we did. Uh, and, you know, it was – I mean, he was, he was fantastic in really every phase of his career – um, but the only one that I can really speak to is is that as of a of a commentator because to a whole generation or several generations of Celtics fans he was he was the voice of the Celtics um, and that's you know that's something that was that was pretty special particularly you know in the eighties as Larry Bird was coming up and then you know just recently he was he was the guy calling all the games for uh, I guess the the new big three the the Kevin Garnett Ray Allen. Um, Paul Pierce Celtics when they were, were made their runs. Um, so, you know, Tommy was someone that meant a lot to, to me and to, and to really to all Celtics fans. Dave, I wanted to go over some numbers because uh, you touched on some of them, but some of them I thought were just incredible. Uh, I wanted to start with Holy Cross. His sophomore year, he took Holy Cross to the NIT finals back when it was as, at least as big as the NCAA finals in 1952. He re- Left Holy Cross uh, after uh, you know playing out his three years of eligibility with seventeen hundred eighty nine points. His first year as a Celtic, he scored thirty seven points in the uh, game seven double time win over Atlanta to bring the Celtics their first title. He retired, averaging eighteen point six points a game and eighty eight uh, excuse me eight point eight rebounds, uh, having played the nine years. The 17 titles, so that that's the number that just is the most amazing to me. That seven, not that the Celtics have won 17 titles, is amazing, but that he was involved in every one of them, and he's the only person to have been involved in every one of them, uh, either as a player, coach, or announcer. And that just speaks to uh, a, a, a relationship, a level of consistency that, like I said, we don't don't see too much anymore. Um, I was introduced to Tommy Heinsohn for the most basic reason possible. 
when I was a kid, I was a Tommy, and he was the only Tommy in the NBA. So he was my man, <laughs> Tommy Einstein, Tommy Fox. And I, I developed a hook shot based oh, on God, him. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I, I love Tommy Einstein. And uh, I really uh, came to know him when he was a coach. Um, in, uh, he won, I believe, in titles in 74 and 76. This was an era of very different basketball. But there was a guy who used to be named Lou Alcindor, and uh, the Celtics would play him with a guy named Dave Cowens. And Dave Cowens was a six foot eight center, and he could hold his own with seven foot two um, Kareem Abdul Jabbar as he became. And those were some of the greatest battles I ever saw those two. And I think they had a level of, of basketball respect for each other. But I wanted to also uh, move into a little bit of leadership because one of the things in researching Tommy for this podcast that struck me was that um, his relationship with Red Auerbach, uh, perhaps one of the greatest coaches ever, and if not the greatest coach in the NBA, certainly top one or two, um, and uh, Red used Tommy in different ways in different parts of his career. And the vision that Red had to be able to see Tommy as uh, obviously a great player, even if he wasn't, if he was, even if he was two-pack-a-day Tommy. Um, but after he left, to bring him back as an announcer to, and to see something that Red thought was important to bring to the announcing booth, but then to moving from the, move him from the announcing booth into the coaching chair. Uh, he did fire Tommy from the coaching chair, but then he hired him back, uh, back into announcing. And so uh, I was wondering if you might uh, have any thoughts about kind of the role of a general manager as opposed to a coach. How does a general manager see different aspects of a player's talent the player might see? And what did you see about that relationship? Yeah, so I mean, Red Red was really both way 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 back when he was he, uh, he coached the Celtics. He was also the GM. He was sort of Mr. Celtic. Um, but initially, Red's relationship with Tommy was really as a as Red's punching bag because I don't know if um, many people know this, but Tommy was was started in the NBA, drafted on the regional draft the same year as Bill Russell, um, and Tommy actually beat out Russell uh, for Rookie of the Year that year, mostly because Russell didn't start in the NBA until December that year uh, because he was playing in the Olympics. Um, so, I mean, Russell was clearly a better player. However, uh, so on that within that team, um, he, he, Red saw each of them as having a different role. So as Tommy would explain it is uh, – Tommy was the punching bag. So Red would yell at Russell and Tommy would say, why aren't, why aren't you yelling at me? And he said, because Russell's the best player on this team. He's our leader. So I can, I can yell at you because I know you can take it. So, so they, they sort of started out with, with that kind of relationship. And then, you know, as, as Tommy explained it years and years later, it was that, you know, the, the thing that Red did to get the most out of his players is, is he, he let them sort of take, take ownership of some of the, uh, some of the play calling and some of the strategy that would go on during the game. Like, um, you know, for example, he would, during a timeout, Red would say, uh, anyone got any ideas? Um, you know, anyone, anyone have any thoughts on, on what we can do out of this timeout? And so what that would do as, as Tommy explained it, is that he knew that if, if a player suggested something that they would try like hell to make it work because they sort of had pride of ownership in it. Um, and so that is, that is something that, that Red, that was a sort of a hallmark of Red's is that, he had this really gruff exterior, but you know, to his players, he was uh, he was everything, and to Tommy, he was everything. And like you said, even though Red, you know, actually fired him, uh, Tommy, 
it was never personal. It was always, it was always sort of, Tommy was always a Celtic. He always saw his, saw red as just doing his job. Um, and, and came back to work for the Celtics um, after a player as a coach. And then after coaching, like you said, as a, as a broadcaster. So they were uh, Tommy and red were very tight. Um, it went so far as to, you know, there was a, there was a story that Tommy told again later in life about, when uh, Red led led a group of uh, NBA stars to Europe to play sort of a, uh, a series of exhibition games after the U- U.S. college players got routed in various world championships and Olympics. Well, Red was saying, "Well, enough of that. They need to see how good we really are." So it was um, it was Tommy and Russell and uh, you know a lot of the stars, NBA stars of that day, sort of like the first dream team. Uh, but they went over to Europe and they were in, um, I believe, it was Poland. And Red had, and this is according to Tommy, um, Red had told Heinsohn, uh and a bunch of other guys, hey, you know what, don't, don't trade in your money on the black market because you can get a better rate in the black market. But, you know, do it, do it legit or else you're gonna, there's going to be trouble. And so I guess Red must have known that Tommy ignored his advice and he, got, uh, he exchanged his money on the black market. And then uh, I guess that same day, Tommy gets a knock at his hotel room door, and I promise this will be a quick story. Uh, and it was these, these two large Polish, Polish official looking fellows that said, you know, Tommy, come with me. Uh, they, I guess they took him down to the alley next to the hotel and into the adjacent building and told him to sit down in the chair in this, in this dark room. And Tommy was like, I gotta get the hell out of here. This, you know, something really bad's going to happen to me here. But then I guess, you know, red came in and, and sort of, you know, revealed that the joke was on Tommy and that, you know, you hope you learned your lesson here. So they, they had that kind of relationship too. So, you know, it was very much mentor mentee. Was that before or after the exploding cigar? <laughs> oh, I don't know that one. You got to tell me that one. I don't know that one. Oh, uh, Tommy fixed up an exploding cigar and got it to red and it oh. literally blew up in his face. So uh, you're right. That, but both stories show the kind of relationship uh, these guys had. I wanted to maybe change the focus a little bit to Tommy as a coach, because in looking back now, it seemed to me he was extraordinarily gifted tactically. And yes. um, uh, when I saw him coach, um, and that he he knew X's and O's of basketball because he had learned from the master. And uh, is it the job of the coach to to not to, to obviously to be a great tactician, but does a coach need to have that strategic vision or um, much like a board of directors oversight above a CEO, can there be a level above a coach, uh, a coach who's a great tactician, but uh, someone else or a group of people bringing that kind of strategic oversight? How does you feel that works best in sports? Well, I think with, with, uh, with basketball in particular, a coach really has to do both. He needs to think strategically, but also has to be a master tactician. I'll give you a couple of examples. So Heinzen, back when he was a coach, and he used to say this over, and I know this because I've heard him say it over and over again in uh, in recent years, his strategy as a coach was, we're going to make sure to out-hustle, to outrun these teams. So when, when the other team would get a basket, whoever was closest to the basket would grab the ball and automatically start the fast break. So in other words, he would keep the defense on its heels. And that, in his eyes, gave his team a strategic advantage right off the bat on almost every possession. It also wore all his players out, but he didn't care about that. He just wanted the strategic advantage every time down the court. And what frustrated him was that in the modern NBA era, 
teams would, you know, as a as a broadcaster, he would interview coaches, he would interview players. You know, he knew everyone around the league, and you know, he would talk to a coach, and the coach would say, you know what, we're gonna, you know, we're, we're gonna play really fast. We're gonna we're gonna hustle down the court. We're gonna make it hell for the defenders to play like us. And Tommy would and Tommy would sort of, you know, roll his eyes a little bit, and say, okay, all right, we'll see. And then, you know, what, what he would point out is that the coach would still have the big man on the floor uh, take the ball out after a basket. So it wasn't, the, you know, the guy closest to the basket taking the ball out. It was still the big man having to walk down to the, to the line, throw it, throw it into the point guard, dribble up court. And Tommy would say, by that time, you've already got four or five guys all the way down the court. So people would, you know, these, these coaches would say they're playing fast, but he would call BS. Because they would still, you know, they still weren't down the court nearly as fast as they as they could have been had they sort of thought outside the box a little bit. Um, but also in today in today's NBA, you really have to think tactically. And you know, the guy who does this the best is um, oh god, why am I blanking on his name now? Uh, Miami coach Eric Spolstra. Eric so Spolstra, right, right, Spolstra. And as a Celtics fan, I watched this painfully than this past postseason is that Spolster had a guy, um, Duncan Robinson, who was a division three player drafted recently guy out of division three was playing against guys from Tufts. And I think he played for Williams, but he drafted him because he could shoot three pointers. He could shoot him quick and he can shoot him with more accuracy than anyone else in uh, collegially. And he said to Robinson, you're okay. You're my guy. All right. You're, when you when you're in the game, all I want you to do is post up behind that three point line and get it off as quickly as possible. And so he had a very specific role for Duncan Robinson. And in fact, he would penalize him if, if Robinson, say, you know, passed up an open three to, to either pass the ball to a teammate or, or try to drive to the hole. And so as a Celtics fan, you know, having all this explained to me, I had never heard of Duncan Robinson, but I saw him literally tear the Celtics limb from limb just by spotting up for open threes. And so that that's a very specific skill set that someone like Spolstra saw and said, like, okay, you know, not not really thinking strategically, but thinking tactically in that sense that I'm going to use this guy off the bench and he's going to kill these other teams and the Celtics would, wouldn't stop playing their, their zone defense. So this was Miami's answer to that. Um, and that, and again, that's just a long-winded example of how you know the smart coaches will will think both strategically with the okay, this is how we want the pace of the game to be, as as Tommy did. Tommy was really big on pace, or or tactically, or you know, like like an Eric Spolster, where he saw very specific roles for certain players to to really take advantage of of weaknesses that he saw in another team. So let me change uh, to maybe a, a broader Boston sports question. And why is continuity uh, so valued or, or sitting here in Texas, I perceive it to be so valued, not simply in Boston, not simply in Massachusetts, but really a, in all of New England. And I would throw in, of course, the Red Sox, Ted Williams from my generation, Carl Yastrzemski, uh, others. Uh, but that really seems to be valued in, in your part of the country and something that uh, the Celtics fans, the Red Sox fans, uh, Patriots came along in the 1960s. So, uh, didn't really have that tradition as much as well, but certainly the Patriots as well. Why do you feel that's so valued, Dave? I think it's because you know continuity is only as good as is what it brings with it. Like if it's you know for as a as a suffering Patriots fan growing up, the continuity meant nothing because Patriots were were terrible. Like I you know I grew up in the eighties and 
they were really never better than a you know five and five and eleven team or a, a six and ten team. They made the Super Bowl one year in the mid eighties, but it you know didn't really pan out too much. But in in New England anyway, continuity is associated with success. So you look at the you know the the the, the Celtics of the fifties, late fifties, early sixties, and seventies. Um, where they won all those championships. Tommy was a, a big part of that. You look at the, uh, uh, the Patriots from the last 20 years. Um, literally, there's a whole generation of Patriots fans who have no idea what it's like to watch a, a really bad NFL team, uh, except for this season, when, when you're, short, you're sort of without Tom Brady, who was that, you know, between, I guess, Brady and, and Belichick, they were part of that continuity of all those Patriots teams that went to the Super Bowl nine years out of, uh, I think it was 18 or 19. Um, just an unbelievable number. Won six Super Bowls under Brady and Belichick. So that so the continuity in that sense really means um, success. Uh, you know, Patriots fans knew year in and year out that you were getting right out of the gate. You, you had won the AFC East. It was only a matter of, are they going to reach the AFC championship game? Are they going to reach the Super Bowl? Is this a Super Bowl winning team? And then with the Celtics, that that continuity uh, was Tommy, and, and he Tommy was really the one person that made um, those really awful Celtics teams of the early two thousands uh, in the late nineties when you know the big three had all retired, and you know those those Paul Pierce teams I guess uh, where Pierce was great, but the Celtics really had nothing else. Um, Tommy was focused on a guy named Walter Riccardi who was, wasn't a great player, wasn't a good player, was sort of a seventh man off the bench, but he hustled. He hustled his butt off, and Tommy loved him. Uh, so he would, he would yell out, you know, I love Walter. And that's my, that's my best Tommy impression, by the way, <laughs> uh, because he loved his, his hustle. And he created this thing called the Tommy Award and Tommy Points. Because, and he would award it to the guy that, you know, would get down on the ground to go out for the loose ball or the guy that would, would hustle down the court on, a, on offense or defense. And, and, you know, Walter was, Walter McCarty was really the, the um, personification of, of that. And, and that was really, you know, so Tommy was the, the Tommy was the, the, he bridged the gap between the eighties Celtics of Bird, McHale and Parrish to the early two thousands or, or 2010s, I guess. Celtics of, of Pierce and Garnett and Allen and today's Celtics are obviously good too. Um, but there was, there was a number of years in between where, you know, the Celtics were hardly worth watching were it not for, for Tommy and, you know, finding the silver linings and celebrating the, the, the small victories. So, I mean, I, and, and, you know, the Red Sox too, there's, there was, there was continuity, I guess, in the, in the early two thousands, those teams were all great. Um, those Theo Epstein teams, the Terry Francona teams, David Ortiz, obviously um, a big part of the, those Red Sox championship teams um, of 2004, 2007. Uh, Ortiz was also part of the team that won in 2013. Um, but, I mean, I would say that the, that the Celtics and the Patriots really had a lot more continuity than the other teams. Um, the Bruins have struggled with, with that sort of continuity, and that's sort of why that they're, they're number four, I guess, in Boston anyway, in terms of um, – in terms of the, the, the passion of the fan. I mean, not the Bruins don't have a passionate fan base, but uh, the other three teams um, are more popular, although the Red Sox have probably fallen, fallen off a cliff in that, in that respect because of their, uh, their last couple of seasons. So, Dave, uh, we're near the end of this podcast, but I was wondering if we might be able to end with uh, our thoughts on what Tommy, Tommy Heinsohn meets to, means 
each one of us. So uh, maybe I could ask you to start. Sure, sure. So Tommy to me, and again, I, I knew Tommy really only as uh, announcer, as an announcer. And as the guy in the middle of light commercials, the, the taste great, less filling that was paired up with a ref. <laughs> he was arguing with a ref like he always does. Uh, so uh, Tommy to me, he he brought joy to to watching a Celtics game because you you really felt that he bled green the same way you did when you were standing up yelling at your TV. He was doing the same thing in the announcer booth, and he was he was yelling at the refs the same way that you were in your living room. And so he sort of he made it feel okay to be not okay, but uh, he 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 made it. Um, uh, I guess he made it mainstream to, for for announcers to be partisan and for fans to sort of accept that as a as, as a norm. Like you like when you're watching a national broadcast, you expect the, the announcers to be. Uh, nonpartisan, but when you're watching the home broadcast, like on your, you know, on, on you're watching the Celtics broadcast, uh, you sort of want that partisanship. You want the you want the announcers to be rooting along with you. And Tommy was the personification of that. Um, he was he was really fantastic. And another thing about Tommy that I didn't know honestly until he passed away was that he was also a great artist and he had a huge heart. Um, he uh, his his broadcast partner. Um, Mike Gorman, who we broadcast with for over two decades, told a story on the radio the other day about, you know, how Tommy, the artist, Tommy went to uh, Mike Gorman's wedding and, you know, and almost a year had passed. And Mike Gorman's wife sort of said to him, huh, we we never get a gift from from Tommy for the wedding. And, you know, Mike sort of blew it off. So Tommy's got a year. It doesn't matter. You know, whatever. Um, But then, you know, shortly after. Uh, Mike Gorman got an invitation from Tommy to uh, to an art show somewhere on the North Shore in Massachusetts, and the featured piece in the art show was a painting that Tommy had painted of the uh, the inn where Mike Gorman was married, and it was that was his gift to Mike Gorman, his broadcast partner. He painted; he took almost a year to paint this gorgeous uh, painting of the inn where he got married. So. And I, and I just learned of this very recently. And, you know, Mike Gorman can't tell the story without breaking down and crying a little bit. So that's – so Tommy meant a, a, a lot to, to, to players, to broadcasters, to fans. And I'm talking about players of, of almost every generation. If you looked on social media the last few – last couple of days since he passed away, you get to see messages from guys like Larry Bird and Paul Pierce, but also of uh, – Current players like Jalen Brown and uh, Jason Tatum, Marcus Smart, uh, people on today's Celtics, they they saw him. Uh, he was still a mentor to them, even to this day. So uh, Tommy was he bled green. He was he was sort of Mister Celtic. He was the guy that was a part of um, all all seventeen of their of their championships, and he'll always be remembered for that. My reflections, first of all, I really felt like he was my main introduction to the NBA. And as I said, it was because he was a Tommy. So uh, there's that. But the other thing is, and it's really, I think, reflected throughout this podcast. We have used the name Heinz and I wrote it down four times. It's been Tommy for both of us. And that speaks to a level of intimacy. And to have that level of intimacy with uh, literally a fan base from Boston to Houston speaks to a character of a man that uh, I've really come to admire as I've researched for this podcast, but he was always just Tommy to me. 
And, uh, you know, yes, he was Mr. Celtic, uh, but I got to see him in all of those roles. And, and to have that kind of relationship with, uh, or what I would call now, what's your brand for Tommy Heinsohn to have that kind of brand with Tom Fox really speaks to something we do not see very often. So, um, Dave, thank you for taking the time to visit with me to share some of your reflections of Tommy Heinsohn. And, uh, uh, as much as I enjoy talking to you about Celtics basketball and Boston sports, I hope we don't have an occasion to do this anytime soon again. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot, Tom. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you have any questions on this episode, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast and iTunes as it would help us increase our rankings and expanding our listener base for the oldest podcast in compliance. If you have any questions you'd like explored on this podcast, please send them to me as well, or you can leave them on the Compliance Podcast Network. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. I hope you'll join us again next week where we take up another issue in FCPA and compliance. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.